Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Trash Cinema. This episode we'll be discussing, obviously from the trailer, Class of 1984, Class of 1999, and real quickly, Class of 1999, Part 2, The Substitute. But first, one more trailer for Class of 1999. Ladies and gentlemen, the current situation in our high schools calls for unusual measures. We are automation and robotic specialists. Meet the pride of Megaton. Good morning, students. We don't gotta do nothing, lady. Ah! Education and inspires. You get a note from the principal? Students have been beaten for minor infractions. Yeah. 
Michael, other side's Kersey. How's it going, Kersey? Hey, what's up? Oh, nothing much. I got I to gotta find a way of saying something different. Every single podcast I've ever done, I'm like, I'm Michael, and uh, that's a uh, blah, blah, blah. And, what's up? <laughs> it's got to come with something else. I gotta, you can you know, write, down a, write down some ideas on a yeah. note sheet. There's nothing like, do you ever listen to the podcast, How Did This Get Made? Uh, no, but I've heard of it. Uh, Jason Manzukis likes to greet everybody with, what's up, jerks? So that's a good one. <laughs> I was thinking, how's it going, pickle dicks? <laughs> yeah, you can like steal something from every podcast you've ever listened <laughs> to. Well, it's all it's all the same shit. How many fucking podcasts discuss trashy movies? But I, I like to I don't really like to shit on the movies unless it's truly worthy. Um, this week we picked actually uh, a series, uh, class of blah blah blah. Um, I actually enjoy all three, though I, I gotta say the third one, the budget's so low that it's a little harder to enjoy. But um, I don't know how you felt about them, but these these are, uh, I think, fun classics, cult classics. Yeah, I agree. I loved all three of them, actually. Nice. It, it, the, last one, the last one is the weakest, but I still thought it was absolutely hysterical. The, uh, and the funny thing is a lot of people may not know that Class of 1984 is... It leads into Class of 1999. They're not direct sequels. There's no reoccurring characters. It's the same director, the same concept, just escalated in a whole different direction. So instead of uh, the students really being the nemesis, it's the teachers. It's a weird flip. Yet the students are still pretty rotten. Well, the, the first one, the students were the, the villains of the movie, I think. I mean, the teacher didn't really do anything, I think, that far out of line. At least, you know, until the end, but they kind of started it. Yeah. Uh, Canadian production, very high-level Canadian production. Uh, I think it was $5 million from the writer of Fright Night and Child's Play. Tom uh, what's that? Tom Holland. Yeah, Tom Holland. Um, and then it's directed by Mark Lester. And uh, I think a lot of people know him from doing Firestarter and Commando. Those are like his two big pictures. But he did a lot of like B-movie, cult classic, drive-in kind of stuff, which is what this show is geared towards. So I would not be surprised if you see another one of his movies pop up on this show eventually. Have we done one of his already? I feel like we've probably done one by now. No, no, I don't think so, because uh, I really don't recall... We, we haven't discussed anything from the 70s. I really don't think we have, except for those two Kung Fu flicks. Uh, then it was this movie, Firestarter... Commando. Then there was a long gap for no, no, no. I forgot he did Armed and Dangerous between Firestarter and Commando uh, with John Candy, which is not a good movie. It's had good ideas, but no, no, it didn't work. Um, and then it was a long gap, and then he got the uh, Class of 1999, and that was a really troubled release because uh, Vestron was really short on cash. They were on the verge of going out of business. And they sold it to Taurus Entertainment, which I think was George Romero's distribution company. I could be wrong on this one. Hmm. That was long. All right, let's. Uh, should we get into the? Yeah, should we get into the first one? <laughs> yeah, we'll be here for an hour if I continue. Uh, yeah, so this one, um, I, I've seen it maybe three times, and I, I had like the crappy VHS with that amazing poster, which captured my imagination as a kid because it seemed something more out of trauma than uh, you know a fine Canadian production. I was actually surprised how serious the movie was, actually. Yeah, um, it it's a really smartly uh, developed film. I wish it had a little bit better budget, 
but the acting is top notch. Mm. The story uh, goes really well. I think it's just because there's a weird thing with Canadian and British film where it's really foggy for some reason. Yeah, I've noticed that too. There's like a kind of like a film over it. Yeah, have you ever seen Prom Night? It has that same exact look, and it, I don't know what that is. Yeah, uh, just inferior cameras, or maybe it's just because it's so cold up there, it's <laughs> a little foggy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm probably gonna guess inferior film. Uh, so basically, yeah. we have a teacher moving in to a new school, and it's a very troubled school. Uh, it was kind of a play on the fact that you know during the '70s and early '80s, urban areas, especially like New York were just absolutely crime-filled. And that's why so many of those vigilante movies are set there. Um, and basically from... It's not like a slow development thing. Like, immediately you realize, oh, this school is shit. <laughs> we're in trouble. Yeah, uh, there was... I also just gotta, gotta throw that out there that Michael J. Fox was in this. Uh, a short, pudgy... Well, I guess he's always short. But it's funny. At first, you, you look, you go, that guy looks like Michael J. Fox. Oh, that is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was really it was bizarre. What uh, was this legitimately the year nineteen eighty four when this came out? Uh, no, it's eighty two. Um, so before this, I think the only thing he had been in was a Disney movie called Midnight Madness, and then he did this, and it must have been almost immediate when he got Family Ties. Mm, okay. So yeah, he he's actually a significant part of this. Um, other than him, it's really only uh, Roddy McDowell is like probably the only other recognizable face to genre fans. Yeah, he was a teacher, right? Yeah, uh, you know he played Peter Vincent in the Fright Night series, uh, Cornelius and Caesar in the Planet of the Apes series. Uh, we have Perry King from Riptide, uh, a cult favorite of mine, which is only on for three years, and uh, Timothy Van Patten as the nemesis, who really didn't do much outside of this movie, and it's kind of a surprise because he is a compelling lead. A compelling hello? Yeah, I said compelling lead. Oh, sorry, I had to cut out for a second. Okay. Um. It, it was interesting. I thought they were going to do a little more with him, but it was he, he was just kind of the dick of the school, you know, the gang leader or whatever. And then, uh, like, halfway through the movie, he just starts busting out these uh, just fantastic uh, musical ability. And it was it, there was kind of this moment of intrigue for the character, but it didn't really last that long. Yeah, but it's, it's one of those pauses that gives the character more than just being a straight villain. It's like, whoa, hold on a second. The guy's got talent and eventually he realizes he's got brains he's got money you know and then uh in his mother's eyes he's the perfect child and the teacher is the one harassing him and he's the villain yeah and it, it made sense too like what because the teacher only got like this small glimpse of probably what he looks like to other people so despite the way that he dresses like a weirdo um you, you can understand how other people would be defensive and, and usually in these movies, the vigilante part from the good guy kicks in a lot earlier. I gotta, I just tell you, this guy is the most patient guy on the planet because he just takes so much shit for so long, and until eventually he just loses it and smashes his car, and then that just doubles down. Which was a terrible decision on his part to physically drive that kid's car into a wall, because that could have killed him. Yeah, I was thinking, why don't you just steal it? Just, like, take it and leave it somewhere, like, in the middle of nowhere, or just give it to somebody else. But, I mean, I guess yeah, he, wanted put it on to, the, put, he wanted to leave a... Put it a, on the cliff. And... Yeah, something. But, I mean, I mean he's all oh, want to leave him, like, a signal or something that I'm not going to back down. But at the same time, I'm sure he would have been like, that's weird, where's my car? And that would have been a pretty good sign, too. Plus, he left his fucking fingerprints all over the steering wheel. He never wiped it down. 
don't know if in 84 they would be doing that. Then again, this is more of a, they, they were going for almost futuristic yeah, it's kind like of one style with these beyond, movies. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I guess that doesn't make sense. There's two moments where or, it's yeah. pure. Uh, go ahead, Zach. No, I was just going to, uh, I was pretty much that. I was just going to say that. I was going to kind of let it go because I thought the same thing when he didn't, you know, clean the car. It's like, well, you're going to get caught, obviously. But, you know, now that we're talking it out, yeah, that was stupid. There's there's two cliches of the drive-in kind of uh, vigilante gang on the run kind of film. And it's always the death of the pet. And it's the, the worst part. It's the hardest thing for me to watch in these movies is the rape scenes. There's always seems yep, to be those two there. in every single one of these. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that. I guess it's just the easiest way to know, oh, they're the bad guy, I guess. Yeah, but it's also kind of lazy. It's like it, that, that was done 10 years earlier with Death Wish, and, and they just kept repeating it over and over and over. And it's not like it ended with Class of 1982. Fast forward to, like, uh, Fatal Attraction, they're killing off the pet and stuff like that. It's it's weird. It just seems like that's half-assed writing. Yeah, but, they, you know, there are for every, well, you know, for every 10 of those crappy movies, there's always one good movie that does incorporate like deliverance or um uh pulp fiction yeah but it 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 seems like they just kind of use that as a trope for like the the men to it to as a call to action for the guy to get revenge and kill everybody right the only time i think it works and it's because it's it's the woman getting the vengeance is there's a movie called miss 45 i don't know if you've ever seen it but um it's basically Death Wish, but with a woman where, and she's mute. She's so traumatized by this that she doesn't say a word the entire film. And she just goes about, like, just after she's already taken care of her own uh, assaulter, that she decides that certain men are just, you know, automatically targets. And she starts taking them out. She, she goes from being, like, a, a Paul Kersey character in Death Wish to just being almost, like, a Jason, like, this is her idea of cleansing the population. It's a crazy movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's really great. No, but I mean, there are other movies like that too. Like I Spit on Your Grave and Angel are in the same right, yeah, sort yeah. of league with the, yeah. Um, the only thing uh, that I wish they had more money for was that final action sequence because there's a couple of scenes that are great, like the, you know when the car flies through and hits the one guy and it collapses and stuff like that. That was really well done, but the final sequence when they're wrapping the rope around Timothy Van Patten's neck and he's falling through the ceiling, I was like, oh, no, that, that didn't sell at all. <laughs> no, I, I, I even forgot, because they, they showed a, a shot of him falling through, like a couple different shots of him falling through glass, and it didn't even look like the rope was even there. Yeah, it, well, I don't know if the special effects were harder to do back then. You know, stunt work wasn't easy to just wipe out with CGI, so that could be it, yeah, but I feel true. like... It should have been like, oh, that didn't work. Let's redo that. But money's tight, I guess. Mm-hmm. The one that was brutal, though, is when he's on the table saw. I mean, just running his arm right through that. Like, oh, Holy my God. shit. <laughs> I, yeah, I have this intense fear of power drills and things like that. Uh, probably because I was a kid and my dad used to just kind of like, okay, so what, what my, my family was moving into a house. My dad sort of took up the renovations, even though he is not a carpenter and knows nothing about that kind of stuff. Oh, boy. He was just kind of like, do it as you go kind of thing. And so his answer to taking out the cabinets and replacing them was to basically huck a chainsaw at the cabinets to to destroy them. (laughs) So, you know, since then, it's been a pretty, I've been pretty weary of table saws and things like that. Does he have all his digits and arms and stuff? 
No, he no, he's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> but my my brain is not. So yeah, we. I yeah, like... anytime there's a movie with like it's Apple Saw or Chainsaw, even like that scene in Evil Dead Two when Ash puts the chainsaw on his knee and revs it up. Every time I cringe because I think he's gonna chop his kneecap off. Oh man, that's terrible. I um I my degree is in uh, technical theater, so we had to do a lot of stagecraft and stuff like that. And we got plenty of warnings, but I gotta tell you, every time I saw someone new go up to that like machine and start like, hold on to that board, I'm, I'm moving, I'm out of here, I'm not gonna die. Because <laughs> you know, if you don't do it right, the board will fly back at you and crack you in the skull, or you'll fall forward. And I just kept expecting someone to fall into one of the blades because they're just like, hey guys, look over here, and like, no, shut up, look at the fucking machine. <laughs> Uh, the the one sequence that I think is absolutely amazing that just sells this film is when Roddy McDowell has completely lost it and he's holding his class hostage and demanding answers for not to who killed his pets but just regular math and science questions and he's like I finally get you through to them I was like oh you don't want to do it that way yeah <laughs> yeah like the uh, you know how many chambers are there in the human heart and uh, that that was that was an ex that was a great scene. Yeah, he's one of my favorite actors, and it's just he got so few roles to really show off his talents because I'll tell you, after Class of 1982, it's a decade and a half of like just low-budget, sleazy films that went straight to video with the exception of Fright Night. Mm-hmm. All right, so is there anything else you want to say about the first movie before we move on to Class of 1999? Uh, no, I think it's a pretty solid movie if you're interested in, that, in those kind of things. If You know, if you like... Uh, movies like Angel, I think this, this is a great one. The uh, this is out on Blu-ray from Shop Factory with tons of extras, as well as the next movie is out from the Vestron special series where they take their old, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you saw on VHS that was never cleaned up. Well, they went through and remastered it, uh, cleaned up the sound, added tons of special features, and it's Class of 1999, which I think just came out. And this is the one that I saw first. Because I had caught a clip on HBO at the very end with robots walking around. I was like, what is this? I got to know what this is. And I had to hunt it down. Yeah, my friend just got that uh, DVD and uh, showed it to me a few weeks ago. Nice. Is, is that the first, first time, time you saw it? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess that makes sense since you're so much younger. It's not one of those things that you would have discovered on cable. I feel like cable doesn't show low-budget trashy movies like it did when I was a kid, which was the greatest thing in the world. Because movies that couldn't afford trailers, you know, so you knew that they were out, you would find them late night on USA or TBS or something like that. And you're like, this is fucking amazing. No one's ever heard of this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, they used to do that when I was a kid, but not movies like that. It was usually just like really cheap to buy movies that they would run. And um, usually it would be like, uh, God, what was the name? Was it Village of the Damned? Was one of them? Was that the John Carpenter one? Yeah, the little blonde haired kids. Yeah, that was one of those I saw. Yeah, but that's a studio picture. That had money behind it, Universal distributing it. But um, did you ever get to see Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs? I have not. Okay, I need to send you some clips. He, This is the thing. He is of his era, okay? So he says some things that wouldn't be considered kosher now. But it's also part of the character is that he's playing kind of like um, an idiot savant uh, good old boy. He's like from Texas, and he has. Mm. So he says some things that are like about you know liberals and 
and uh, you know feminism and stuff like that. But it's the character he's playing, and it's it's a juxtaposition of the fact that he talks about these really really sleazy films the way that Roger Ebert would talk about Academy Award winning films, and then he mixes in with character pieces, and it would evolve because you know as the times evolve. So when he started off on the movie channel for like six or seven years, it was real hillbilly. And then when he went to TV or TNT, it's when it became Monster Vision, and that's when they did a double feature of horror films, sci-fi, you know, Godzilla stuff. Um, and then you would see like that change to him just being outside in his trailer, and then inside, and then they completely got rid of the hillbilly stuff and just gave him like a bowling shirt and cut off all his hair. He no longer wore a hat, and it got canceled in 2000. And uh, I'm going off on a, a trip here, but if you love trash cinema, you know why I love this show so much. So I'm going to send you a clip of this. And uh, USA Up All Night, which was like the competitor at the same time with uh, Gilbert Godfrey and Rhonda Shear, and they were always hosting like trauma films with like a uh, requirement for that network. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like uh, my kind of thing. I remember uh, um, when I was younger, I used to always watch uh, IFC because that was kind of, um, it was almost in competition with HBO at the time because I believe that. They were also a cable run at the time, so that they didn't have commercials or anything like that. And but their thing is that they would buy really cheap movies and they would play those. So they're like really low budget horror movies. Uh, and then kind of the same with HBO is it just didn't become as profitable anymore, and they started getting more commercials, becoming more mainstream. And now it's just kind of a a B like a crappy movie channel. Yeah, it's when you see that '70s show on IFC, you're like, I no, no, that, I don't even understand how that works. What is this technically independent? You know, I don't. That, why is there even a TV yeah. show on here that's not made by them? Yeah, I remember when it was like Lake Placid Four or something like that, <laughs> oh, playing there and doing all those kinds of movies. Yeah, there was a weird switch when networks were doing like the ones I mentioned earlier. They went from doing the cheesy stuff to doing like more studio fare. And then AMC, America Movie Classics, decided to air Pinata, Survival Island, where they possessed Pinata. And I was like, well, I guess this network's done. <laughs> and the same thing for IMC, I just don't get it. I don't know. I don't know what's up. I, I think that the, the schlock genre is dying, I guess. Yeah, or a, a non-purposely schlocky. Like Sharknado's still going in and shit like that, Zombievers. Um, but I kind of <laughs> like the little scrappy film that was trying as much as it could. And sometimes failed horribly, or like class of 1999, you know, somehow there's some, there's a really solid stuff in there. And I think the first time I saw that was on Monster Vision. Yeah, uh, this is definitely the best of the trilogy, and I absolutely love this movie. Great cast, great cast. Stacey Keach with that weird white mullet, fascinating. <laughs> uh, and then you also have uh, Pam Greer, of course. Yep. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, what was, was it? Foxy uh, Brown, was that her name? Yeah, well, she, she was in Jackie yeah. Brown, but she was also in Foxy Brown Jackie and Brown. Cleopatra. No, she wasn't Cleopatra Jones, but she was just in a bunch of those great 70s exploitation films. Yeah, I believe this was before Jackie Brown, right? It was. It was seven years before. It, it had to be. <laughs> there was about a 10-year period where her career was just kind of, she was no longer a leading lady, but she was still in, like, studio stuff. She's, like, the only survivor of the black exploitation fallout of the 70s. Um, but then she was in the first Steven Seagal movie as his partner, and that kind of got her noticed again. So I think that's how she ended up getting like, hey, uh, you know, the class of 1999 and other like Mars Attacks and stuff like that. Got it. Okay, I did not get. Maybe you can explain this, but what is the appeal of Steven Seagal, man? Like, 
I thought John Claude Van Damme was pretty low on the you know kung fu action totem pole, but like, how did Seagal get anywhere? Um, so kung fu had kind of died off in the early '80s. All you had was basically Chuck Norris. Seriously, there was nobody else. There wasn't even independent studios really distributing martial arts. And all of a sudden, in 88, you get Van Damme and Bloodsport, which was the much, much lower budget, like, breakout for him, because I think it was a $1 million budget. That had the exotic feel. That had the Enter the Dragon feel. Um, but uh, Above the Law was a studio-produced film with a, a quality director, a decent cast, you know, Sharon Stone and Henry Silva and, and uh, um, camera who else is in that. But um, it was released by Warner Brothers, and it did okay. I think it made like $16 million. But it blew up on video. And I remember my dad watching this over and over, and I just kept looking at it going, this is terrible. This is a fucking terrible movie. Steven Seagal made one good movie, and that was Under Siege. And the rest, if they're enjoyable, it's because they're so hilariously awful. Or it's just mind-numbing action the whole way through it, so at least it's like candy, you know? Um, But what I think it is is that Steven Seagal was a technical fighter. He wasn't showy. He wasn't elaborate sequences. He was more about just grabbing you and cracking your arm. And plus, I think the super macho bros out there are like, all right, man, a dude just like us. No, he's not like you. He's fucking... I, yeah, I don't get the yeah, Steven Okay, I heard this rumor, and I don't know how true this is or if this has been explained or explored at all or if this is just something I heard way off in left field. I heard that Steven Seagal's career actually started in some kind of martial arts thing where... Uh, two studio executives were kind of, you know, uh, showing their clout to each other, mm-hmm. being like, "Oh, I can get, I can phone call this guy right now, and yeah, you're right. He could Actually, offer me a picture no, deal." That's exactly and then and one guy pointed to Steven Seagal and like pointed to the biggest douchebag he could find and be like, "I'm so, I'm so high up in the total pole, I can make that guy an action star." That's actually pretty close. I think that's uh, what I've read too. Is just like he knew the guy, and he, I think it was Michael Ovitz or something like that, who was a huge. Um, agent at the time and he was just like i'm gonna make that guy a star and you're just like why he's greasy he just looks like a wet noodle you know just ugh. whereas van damme looked like he bust his ass in the gym non-stop you know at least visually yeah. he was like oh yeah i get that i couldn't speak hardly I mean, a word of english yeah, he, i mean he's not the he's not like the big he's not like the big beefy action star but you can definitely tell that he's got a lot of endurance and he's exceptionally strong like his uh, montages are still pretty cool today. Yeah, I mean, he, I think, had more quality films. And it's funny is uh, one of the villains in Class of 1999, to bring it back, is uh, Patrick Kilpatrick, who is one of the most awesome like uh, villains in that era. He was the bad guy in Van Damme's Death Warrant, which everybody says is a kung fu flick. And I watch it and I go, no, this is a horror movie that happens to have martial arts. This is a slasher film that has a bunch of kicking. <laughs> Have you seen Death Warrant? It's written by uh, David Goyer, and it's a prison like horror what movie. The, uh, no, I haven't, and I, I I'm a, a big fan of Goyer, so this is new to me. Yeah, I got I got so many movies I want to show you now. We, we sometime we are going to have a Van Damme Steven Seagal off. I'm gonna find the craziest Van Damme movie, the craziest Steven Seagal movie, and we're gonna watch. Maybe I'll even throw a Dolph Lundgren in just for the fucking hell of it. <laughs> Uh, that sounds like it would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, so Patrick Kilpatrick's another one of the robots in this. Uh, I think he's the last one that survives. He's a really like skull-faced one. Looks like his it looks like his head, his head is too big for his flesh, and it's just gonna pop out of it. 
yeah, he's got an interesting face. And they kind of, I think in the sequel, they try to make it seem like that new guy is the same one, right? Uh, no, did they? I didn't catch that. I thought maybe he was supposed to be just one of the line of those robots that were being developed. And when Cece Keach's character was killed off, there's no one at the lab controlling it. And I guess they just activated it and, and it went on its own. Uh, I thought he was, I thought the, he was the one that survived. And then he, you know, like built himself back up and came back or something. Could be. I didn't catch that part, but, you know, um, I also have extreme ADD, so I might have missed that. Uh, second one, like you were saying, is, uh, is I think it has the most um, world building. You know, it, it's really detailed in what's going on just uh, with the gangs and, and the rules and, you know, the areas and stuff like that. Like, who does this? And that there's this special drug that's been wiping out everybody. It's more than just one guy versus another guy and turning into a vigilante movie. It's like uh, it's almost like this mini war. Yeah, it's like a low rent Mad Max Fury Road where there's like different factions and they have their different styles and uh, rules and things like that. It's not as well developed as something like Mad Max, but it does work on its own. It doesn't need the Terminator as a teacher concept, but it, it it's good. That's interesting. I just thought of something. Uh, the kid. Uh, not 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 the main star, Bradley Gregg, but the little kid. Um, I can't remember his name all of a sudden, but he is also in that movie Death Warrant. He's like the smart ass cop or a smart ass assistant to a cop. Uh, I'm gonna look this up right now because his dad was uh in The Exorcist, and that actually became like the bane of his existence is that his dad was super famous for The Exorcist. Uh, Joshua Miller. Um, he was also in Near Dark. If you've ever seen that one. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, he wrote one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's called The Final Girls, which is kind of a love letter to Friday the 13th. Hmm, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's really great. It's funny, and it's horrifying. It's really well made. Uh, I, and Columbia Pictures bought it, and I thought that they were going to release it wide, and they changed their mind at the last minute and sent it straight to video. But it's become like this huge midnight movie um, um, like in San Francisco and L.A. Interesting. Uh, uh, so, uh, do yeah, we get... do we even get to the plot of the nope, second one? No, because I'm an asshole who goes off on segues, <laughs> tangents. I, to be fair, I'm the one who brought up the Steven Seagal thing, so that's yeah. my bad. Uh, yeah, so it basically now we've kind of switched places. Where yes, the students are still monsters, but they're nowhere nearly as bad as the the teachers that have replaced the normal teachers. They are cyborgs, but if I remember correctly, they don't actually tell most of the world only malcolm mcdowell the principal knows this yeah pretty much and the, the, i would also like to point out that in this movie probably more than the other ones there actually is an interesting sort of nuance with the, with the kid characters who are you know gang leaders and shit they actually do take the time to explain like why they're doing it uh the the, uh, the main character is trying to help his brother um because you know they live in a basically a bombed out shelter so he's trying to like make sure that they can survive, and there, there's more intrigue in in this movie with the kids. Yeah, the the main character is very noble. He he chooses, you know, and, and he sticks to it that he's no longer going to be part of these gangs. And I thought it was really it's just weird when the guy's like, "Well, if you're not part of us, you're you know, if you're not with us, you're against us." It's like, no, no, that's not how that works. I, but I've heard that's true of like a lot of gang mentality is either you're with us or you're against us. And it's like, can I just not be a part of either side? No. Oh shit. Okay. You know, it's actually the the I, get, I think a good analogy for this movie, not really Mad Max, would probably be American History X. Yeah, anything. definitely. <laughs> uh, special. So effects. yeah, if you like American, oh go ahead. Oh all right. <laughs> um, I was gonna say this, the special effects 
um, are it's, it's still tightly budgeted, but I think they're very creative and they're a lot of fun to watch. Like, okay, that's cool. I've never seen that before. And it does not, uh, it does a nice amount of gore. Yeah, the special effects, I, um, you know, not the not, not the best, not Terminator level, um, but still really impressive, especially for its budget. Uh, and if you're a fan of Pam Greer, who her boob is out for like the last 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm sure a fake boob. <laughs> for whatever reason, for whatever reason, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fake robot boob. Um, I don't know why, well, I know why, because it's sex appeal, I guess, but... In the end of the movie, like blow them up, but of course they're robots, so explosions don't affect them as much. So it just kind of tears away their uh, fake skin uh, and their clothes, and Pam Greer's boob is out for, or fake boob is out for the last half hour. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty action packed. The uh, the sequel, uh, which was three years later, not directed by Mark Lester. It's a, it's the only one in the trilogy that isn't. It's still produced by him. Uh, it was directed by Spiro Rosados, who is one of the most well-known stunt makers. In fact, I think he might have done stunts for uh, Fury Road. I know I saw his name on something recently. I haven't looked it up, but uh, he only directed like two movies, and it was probably for the best because they're they're only okay. But he's one hell of a stunt guy. Spiro mm-hmm. Rosados. I, I don't really see any of this, any of his impressive stunt work in this movie, though. No, it, it looked like it was real tight budget, maybe a couple million at most. Uh, it's more kung fu. There's hardly any actual like robot effects or anything like that. That's the disappointing part. Well, that that's the thing. The guy the guy wasn't a robot. That was the whole thing. Oh, oh fuck, that's right. Why did I forget that? That's stupid. I'm, now I embarrassed myself. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Forgot about that. <laughs> totally. Anyway, yeah. So, um, well, that that's the thing. The kung fu in this movie sucked too. It, it was. I mean, I liked it because it reminded me of. When I was a kid doing, you know, cor- you know, fighting choreography with with my friends, it looked about as convincing. It's uh, uh, Sasha Mitchell. If you've ever heard of him, he for a brief moment was kind of like one of those uh, directed video stars. He was on a TV show called uh, Step by Step, where he played a dum dum, straight up dum dum, and everybody loved how Cody, hey man, how's it going, dude? You know, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, he shows up in Kickboxer Two. Three, four, and this, and that's pretty much all he did. And uh, so, like for three or four years there, he was kind of like a well-known direct-to-video action star. And then I think he got in trouble for beating his wife or something, and yeah, he was Ooh. done for. Yep, uh, that'll get you kicked out of the White House now. Yeah, will it? Because I, <laughs> no, yeah, I was gonna say then we should probably get rid of the person who is actually in the office. No, that happened recently. One of I know, I know. Uh, just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Topical, political humor. That's oh, what everyone I, loves in this podcast. Yeah, I, well, I do it in every podcast. I, <laughs> I, I wear it on my sleeve, man. Uh, so real quickly, Spiro Rosados, after he decided that directing wasn't his thing, he, he's been doing stunt coordination on some of the biggest movies around. Fate of the Furious, he's doing Venom, he did Skull Island, uh, Captain America Civil War, Winter Soldier, Total Recall, and The Expendables. Those are some of the stuff he did recently. You know, I would like to do a weird special on how much I hate the movie Civil War, the Marvel one. That was, like, I think probably the worst movie I have seen in a significant amount of time. Wow, I'm But another day. (laughs) (laughs) I was pissed when I left the theater. Yeah, is it? I mean, we can go into that sometime. Yeah, because you and I are usually on the... uh, The only thing we are ever on the opposite sides are, it seems to be, comic book movies. And you know what's funny is I'm still, like adamant like no no and then i give it like five minutes ago fuck Kersey was right damn it i'm not gonna tell him that though (laughs) (laughs) 
that's how most people are when I talk to them about it, especially Civil War. Yeah, you're, that's you're, one for a lot of people to swallow when yeah. I when I tell them how much I hate it. Well, I hate the fact that the first half hour that camera shakes so much that I had to look away. I want to puke Holy so bad. Crap. And the color of the movie was just so disgustingly yeah. gray. Well, like we all should, these we great should. costumes, they're just gray. We should do it. This would be fantastic. Well, we, we could find an old Captain America movie and discuss it, and then we'll just casually throw that in. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk. Are we going to do the Red Brown Captain America? Yes, because we already did the 1991, <laughs> uh, but there's the old Red Brown ones. And I am a huge fan of Red Brown because he's so terrible. <laughs> but God love him. He seems so enthusiastic about being terrible. Mm-hmm. I listened to his commentary track. You remember how we did Your Hunter from the Future a couple years ago? Oh, yeah. It came out on Blu-ray recently, and I listened to the commentary track, and it's so, like, half-assed. He's just like, yeah, and that's when I was wearing a cod piece. Yeah, we can see that on the screen. Yeah, it was really cold. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Man, look, lots of, oh, like, God. every five minutes. And this is before CGI. Wow, look at those special effects. Is there effects. anything? They're so real. Right is there anything CGI? he does not steal from Arnold Schwarzenegger? Have you seen Arnold Schwarzenegger do a commentary track? It's the same thing. It's pretty, yeah, I, right here is when I was picking up the sword and swinging it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, did, yeah. Watch the watch the Total Recall bit. The the when he's at the airport and he's pretending to be the the lady. Yeah. At the airport, watch that commentary bit. It is the best thing because he just literally talks about what's going on as he's watching it. He got paid five hundred thousand dollars to do commentary for that movie. <laughs> it's fucking pathetic. He did not give a single fuck. <laughs> no, he didn't. It's amazing. Um. So yeah, the third one. It's still entertaining, but like y- y- you and I agree that it's a step down. Yeah, I, I was actually interested in the beginning because it seemed I had an inkling that he was human, or at least this might be like a replicant situation where he has human memories or something like that because it seems like he did have PTSD. Mm-hmm. And that would have been an interesting uh, thing to kind of explore, but to kind of forego that to have weird scenes of him stalking uh, the female teacher. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh... It has one of the classics of B-movie trash, Nick Cassavetes, who um, who ended up being like kind of a well-known director. He did The Notebook, but for a while there, man, he was doing some of the lowest-budget, cheesy stuff. It's weird how some people can just take that turn. Yeah, um, that I think that was probably the best part of the movie, though, was his creepiness. Yeah. You know, like, she'll just be reading the book that, she, that he gave her, and then he's just staring at her from the window. <laughs> Those were hysterical well you also watch her it's like not looking out the window don't look at the window don't look at the window the call cut if you look out the window the call cut and just... <laughs> speaking of replicants real quickly um i am a philistine because i watch both blade runners and they're beautiful they're well made but i'm god i'm so bored out of my mind of which one both both are so beautiful Whoa. but so boring they're so long <laughs> Oh man, you could not be more wrong about 2049. That was the was... best movie I've seen last year. Well, I was a little mad that Harrison Ford's like in 20 minutes of it. I was like, don't put him on the poster. <laughs> don't put his name before the title. Yeah, That's I was. That's an ad. I was upset. Yeah, I was upset by that too. That was, yeah, they, he, him in that gray t-shirt is in like every poster and DVD cover. And he's barely in it. Yeah, it, it, it's it, like it's like what they did with. Brian Cranston in the Godzilla movie. Oh, right. Two weeks of filming will give you $10 million. Cool. What is it? Godzilla? Oh, yeah. shit. I already signed the contract. Well, okay, cool. What's it? Who's directing it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So I don't know what we'll do for the next episode, but uh, we'll toss around some ideas. And, uh, Kersey, thank you again for another great episode. 
Yeah, thanks very much. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed these three. I would recommend any of them. Yeah, and especially now that they've been cleaned up and there's some extra deluxe versions of the first two. The third one is actually free on, um, I don't want to say it's on the uh, Roku app, but it's owned by Vidmark, so it's going to probably show up on every single app except for uh, Netflix. Netflix, a sign of quality, except for Zombievers. Oh. <laughs> all right, everybody, check us out on Facebook under Video Night, where you find all our episodes there. And um, I think it's best to end this with Alice Cooper saying, I'm the future. You know, everybody, I could say goodbye and let Kersey go and not have to sit through the song. I could do that like a mature human being, Kersey. <laughs> you don't have to sit around for this whole Say goodbye to the folks. All right, see you, everybody. Stay trashy. Trash Cinema. All right, everybody, welcome to Trash Cinema. I'm your host, Michael. Kersey's on the other side. How's it going, Kersey? Yeah, he's going pretty good. Hey, hopefully we don't have an epic fucking disaster like last time. Because, hey, uh, you know that episode I just posted about Cobra and Drive Angry? He was supposed to be part of it. But I wasn't going to put him through that torture <laughs> while I figure out what the hell's wrong with my recorder. Oops. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I added too much to it anyway. The, uh, this episode we'll be discussing two John Carpenter flicks, In the Mouth of Madness and Village of the Dam, two movies kind of towards the end of his career. Uh, I would say the more questionable second half of his career. Mm-hmm, definitely. The, uh, I, I see that he kind of peaked at Big Trouble in Little China, which, yes, I know it was a flop and critics were kind of lukewarm to it, but I loved it from the first time I watched it. It's built a, a solid fan following. I think people have changed their mind. And they've also changed their mind on Prince of Darkness and They Live. It's after that, when he walked away for four years and came back, is when things get hinky. Yeah, it was definitely a step down. So, like, one of the things um, that I always admired about John Carpenter was that he, he was he was an exceptional, exceptionally good director, not great. Like, he, he was... Re- he, he knew how to work a, a scene really well, and he knew where to put the camera. And he, he always had a few interesting shots here and there, but he never really wowed anybody with the camera, like um, the movie Birdman or um, The Revenants have like amazing camera work. Nothing particularly that stands out, but it's always been solid. But during the last half of his career, it's, it really went downhill. The uh, what I think it is is the fact that he didn't want to play the studio system anymore, and he also lost his director of photography for years was Dean Cundy, and then it changed to Gary Kibb. Gary Kibb's talented, but he doesn't have the same kind of vision that Dean Cundy has. But what I love about John Carpenter movies, the same thing I love about Walter Hill films, is that they're kind of meat and potato films, just really well-made meat and potato films, super wide, you know, 2.35 uh, almost cinemascope level, um, and then playing with the lights. You know, you still get the lens flare, especially that early John Carpenter stuff. But the stories are about just like straight up tough guys, you know, n- no nonsense kind of thing in these outrageous universes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and in Mount Madness and um, Village of the Damned are pretty much the same way. Um, 
Village of the Damned much more so, John Carpenter style. Like if I were to watch that, I would know who directed. Village of the Damned, a very cheap looking, like very like B team crew style. Yeah, I argued with someone about uh, Escape from L.A., and I feel like he was just phoning it in. He was a gun for hire by this point. Same thing for Village of the Damned. I think he just took it for a paycheck. Uh, the special effects in Escape from L.A. are fucking awful. I mean, just god-awful garbage. It was a $50 million budget, and they couldn't have taken the time to slow down and maybe done less cheesy. And then someone's like, well, he did it on purpose. He's a rebel. He was thumbing his nose at all the bad CGI out there in Hollywood. I'm like, no, I think you're giving him too much credit. I think he was really just phoning it in and counting his money while the camera was rolling. To me, it really seemed like he was trying to uh, get his career a real shot in the arm with uh, Escape from L.A. That would be like, oh, that's my return. Mm-hmm. And then it just horribly failed. And then he's like, okay, I don't even care anymore. Now, there's stuff I do like about Escape from L.A. I love all the great cameos, um, some of the outrageous characters, especially the Bruce Campbell character, the Surgeon General of Los Angeles. I like the fact that it sticks its, nu- uh, you know, its thumb at the Republican kind of idea of running a country. And the fact that the movie ends on this note where he's just like, you know what, we're going to start over. I'm going to send this EMP blast to the entire planet and take us back to the you know, caveman days, but he does it in such a clumsy fashion. Uh, the special effects are terrible. The camera work is uh, seriously questionable. And I mean, it just feels like it was a $15 million like dimension film, you know, just like some from some, you know, guy from Canada, not John Carpenter. Well, yeah, I agree with that. But another thing I really liked about Escape from LA is I thought Snake's character was, uh, better in some ways uh, there are just like some details added into it that he fights dirtier in this one yeah um that he actually this time actually attempted to kill his uh his captors or the people that implanted the drug in him it's like details like that i thought made him a much better character this time around but it, yeah the, especially the cg is impossible to get over <laughs> uh and then there's john carpenter's vampires which I argued for a long time was much better than Blade, which both of them had come out really close to each other. And I watch it now mm-hmm. going, what the fuck was I thinking? I mean, not that Blade's great. Blade doesn't hold up that well. Blade 2 is amazing. But uh, John Carver's Vampires is really, really clumsy, and there's some horrendous acting in it. Like James Woods is on fire, but Daniel Baldwin is one of the worst actors to ever be in a mainstream film. No, actually, that is funny because we uh, we had done that one before, and uh, a little known fact. I don't know if anyone uh, that you know listens to Hollywood Babylon. That's the Kevin Smith podcast. Mm-hmm. But I actually sub- I I submitted that scene from Vampires. What? When? Uh, yeah. So and it got played too. And Whoa! The letter got read out loud too. So if you find it, it's pretty funny. But there's a scene that I thought was hilarious. So I had to share. Was when was it Daniel Baldwin? He's the yeah, the worst of the Baldwins. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's up for debate with Stephen. Yeah, yeah. So he is uh, eating a sandwich and talking to that one girl that's in the bed smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And then when he sits down in the bed next to her, she like burns him with her cigarette by accident. And you can like see in her face, she says, oh shit. And like moves the cigarette really quick. That shot is in the movie. It's hilarious. I gotta watch that again. 
I, you know, you had mentioned yeah. something about uh, your article. I showed up, but I don't remember us ever discussing John Carpenter's vampires. Did we do that on a previous episode? I don't remember. We did. That's how forgettable it was. Fuck! I, I can't believe I forgot. Um, and then, then real quickly, Ghost of Mars is when I said, okay, we're done here. We're just done. I had seen quite a few of his films in the theater, and when I came out of Ghost of Mars, I was like, this is just Assault on Precinct 13 with a bigger budget, and I could care so much less. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, man, because uh, I haven't seen Ghost of Mars yet. I have a plan to watch every single John Carpenter movie. Because I, I think there's only two or three I haven't seen of his yet. Okay. And Ghost of Mars is like my very last one I'll watch. The uh, well, I'm curious, what are the other ones? Uh, I don't remember right now. Uh, you, you mentioned one of them I haven't watched yet. Oh, okay. Dark Star, have you seen that one? No, not yet. That one, okay, so it may just be personal, but that one was transformative. I had seen that my freshman year of college. This is when I started like getting into the weirder films. And my roommate was like, you got to watch this and Clockwork Orange together. And I don't know why, but they're just kind of like these weird just steps out of our generic meat and potatoes action movie horror, you know, just like the studio stuff. And Dark Star is, uh, it takes patience, but it's very rewarding in, in it's a low budget goofiness. It's very, very low budget because technically it's a student film. Uh, so, hey, the, <laughs> the movies we're actually here to discuss. <laughs> Shit. Um uh, let's see, In the Mouth of Madness uh, was the one that was delayed for quite some time. I remember seeing posters for it, summer of 94, it was supposed to come out around Chris, uh, Halloween, and I think New Line Cinema got cold feet because the movie is a little confusing, I guess, if you're stupid. Um, I figured it out with no problem, uh, but also that it has kind of a similar feel uh, to A New Nightmare, which came out also October of 1994, so I can see... New Line Cinema wanting to separate the two films. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I don't know why audience, I guess audiences are just stupid, but any movie that opens in the, the middle or the end of the movie, everyone gets really confused like every time. It's really annoying. Yeah, the Pulp Fiction anyway, yeah. did have a problem with it, though, and that came out at the same damn time. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, it's a trippy as hell movie. Um, it's pretty unconventional by, uh, by a lot of standards. does not hold up as well, especially the acting. Um, but I don't know. What did you think? I still think it's great. Um, I don't think it's as great as what it, when, I, when I first saw it. It was like mind-bending. I was like, oh, my God, this is what you can do with horror movies. Like This was during a period when horror movies were doing so bad at the box office, and they were getting really dull. They are all like Freddy ripoffs. You know, we had Dr. Giggles and Candyman. Actually, Candyman's pretty good. Um, but shit, like that Leprechaun. Um, but then 94, you start seeing the revival. Like the guys, you know, New Nightmare, you have this movie in the Mouth of Madness, and then eventually you get Scream. You know, all the masters are starting to come back to the horror genre. And Yeah, we're just kind of getting off of the the the, 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 the time, the period of time where they were trying to make the mascot horror movie. Yeah, and this is when they're just like unique visions. And uh, I appreciate it for what it is. See, I saw it when it first came out, so it's hard to compare because I would say some of the special effects don't hold up. I don't, I don't think the acting is bad. Um, I think it's just acting has changed. Every decade, acting changes. You watch movies from the 50s and 60s, and you roll your eyes at how theatrical, like, over-the-top it is. And then the 70s and 80s are more subtle, and then the 90s, you know, I just each each decade is totally different in the way it approaches acting. Um, 
But no, I would probably say it was a four star out of five for me when I first saw it. Now it's probably about a three, three and a half. Interesting. I was still giving it a four out of five. I think it's a great movie. I love some of the, uh, I love most of the special effects because it's for the most part practical. Yeah. I think it's a hundred percent practical. Uh, no, wait, no, there's a couple that are. Yeah, where he but tears his face, I, I, where he's opening the doorway is, is uh, well, it might be practical mixed with optical. No, I'm not that sure. was practical. Okay. The door, yeah. Uh, I think is when they were driving in the clouds or whatever. I think that was the... Uh, well, that might have been. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I thought it was a great movie. Uh, I loved it. The only problem I had is that it's intentional. A lot of the line reads are intentionally bad because it's supposed to be written in the style of like a crappy horror book. Right. See, that's something that a lot of people don't get. In fact, it took a couple of viewings to get the fact... Oh, God, it's a spoiler, but if you haven't seen it by now, then why are you listening to this? The fact that it's it's like the way Last Action Hero is. Uh, that is intentionally a bad movie that they're in. This is intentionally a bad pulpy novel. It's like a really bad ripoff of uh, Stephen King. You know, Sutter Kane is more like a Dean Koontz kind of guy. And you don't realize until the very end that you're in the book the entire time. You're watching the adaptation of the book. It's, it's not complicated. Me explaining it is complicated. <laughs> Yeah, so basically the, the idea, the, the gist of the movie is, like, we haven't even talked about what the movie is about. No. So the movie is about someone who investigates insurance claims, is the main act the main character. Mm-hmm. And he's hired to try to find uh, Sutter Kane, this person who writes these wildly popular uh, horror novels. He apparently had gone missing. Uh, they need him to go get uh, the, the his final book, In the Mouth of Madness. So it's kind of, it's this journey that he goes on to try to find this guy and it's wildly fascinating because at the same time there's also like these crazy suicides and murders going on of the fans of this uh, novel series and it just kind of unfolds over time and it's really interesting but again it's written and acted like a pulpy um, horror novel so it's it's kind of a mix yeah it's uh, basically uh, an homage to Lovecraft it's about these otherworldly creatures that are trying to open a gateway through the books, um, which also reminded me of A New Nightmare, is that Freddy becomes such a pulp icon in our world that that gains power, and then Freddy's trying to burst into our world through a new movie. I, I thought it was kind of similar. Same studio, same concept. Uh, in a way, same concept about you know uh, fiction becoming a reality. Yeah, and I think this one did it really well. I, I think New Nightmare did it better. Probably. And I think it stands the test of time better, definitely. But, I mean, if you're in the mood for a trippy horror movie, I, this is, I, this is, I would highly recommend this one. The uh, the girl that's in this is the villain from Fright Night 2, Julie Carmen, and I don't really recall her from any other movies besides this and uh, Fright Night 2. She's a really good actress. Is she really? I don't I like so. her. I, I what, really okay, in this one, have you seen Fright Night 2? The original Fright Night 2, yeah, I yeah. should say. Okay. Yes, the original, yeah. Charlie. <laughs> um, I don't even want to talk about the other Friday. I don't even know what the hell that's all about. It's like a, a remake of a remake of a remake. The uh, Village of the Damned, I think, is the one that's more questionable. Um, oddly enough, I've only ever seen Mouth of Madness twice, maybe three times. And um, in the uh, Village of the Damned, I think I've seen maybe a dozen times because I have a collection with all the Universal uh, John Carpenter films, so it's The Thing. Uh, they live Prince of Darkness in Village of the Damned, and it's just like one of those casual, well, I got it right here, let's just watch that. Oh, 
Yeah, one of one of those is not like the other. <laughs> the um, I don't know what to say, but this is clearly um, a for hire film because yes, it looks like a John Carpenter film. He cast a lot of his actors from previous projects, uh, but it's it just I don't think he cares. It just feels like it's very very studio safe, boring bullshit. There's there's nothing at all interesting, unique, or even Carpenter esque about movie i don't even know if he scored this one if he even cared enough no i think it just has you know gary kibb on cinematography has his wide look uh he uses some of the actors i remember being really really excited when we got this uh i i didn't go to the theater but i got it on video um because uh i like okay admittedly i like shitty movies i like shitty actors or good actors that do just like they do their job instead of phoning it in in really terrible movies and Michael Pere is one of those. He was in Streets of Fire and Eddie and the Cruisers, two movies that I saw a bunch as a kid. I was fascinated by And I found out that he was in Village of the Damned. And I was like, oh my god, finally another studio film after like a decade of shit. And then he gets killed in the first five minutes. I was like, no! <laughs> the interesting thing about the, I don't know if this is... Is this a remake of another movie? Yeah, it's an old... There's two old movies. It's Village of the Damned and Children of the Damned from Universal. I think they're like late 50s, like 58 and 59, 59, 58, 60, something like that. So yeah, it's a remake. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, it definitely feels like it. The uh, We got Christopher Reeve in his last major role before his horrible accident that ended up taking his life later. Um, this is kind of a comeback for him too, because he hadn't made a theatrical release in a few years and it must have been a bummer for him when it just like got savaged by the critics and they got no box office and just like, oh man, damn it. I think he had worse things on his mind pretty soon after that. Yeah, soon after that. Well, I'll still say this, it, this is better than Superman 4. <laughs> Okay, was that the one with Richard Pryor or was that number three? That's number three. Number four is with Nuclear Man. Not Nuclear Man. Oh, nuclear yeah, yeah. Man. Um, which okay. he, he wrote the script the one for. Where yeah. he throws all the nuclear weapons into the sun, right? Yep. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> Just uh, I was listening to an interview with John Cryer, and he said the script that you saw on the screen wasn't even close to the script that Christopher wrote. And I'm like, why hasn't someone turned that into a comic book? Like, if you have his original script, honor the man by turning to a graphic novel so you can see his original vision. Yeah. The, oh, my God. Was that also the one where they had a strand of Superman's hair that was, like, so powerful it could, it could carry, what was it, like, 50 pounds, and then someone just cuts it with a pair of scissors? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the whole movie's just garbage. That uh, That's a discussion for another time. But, um, so we also have, uh, what, Kirstie Alley? Hamming it up. This is just one fucking bonkers performance. This is a terrible performance with Kirstie Alley. I don't even, I don't even forgot that she was in it. Yeah. Um, we got Mark Hamill as the preacher who goes, no, he doesn't go bad. That's a different movie. That's uh, John Carpenter's Body Bags. But uh, he's a preacher who's trying to take out the kids. And most of the movie is, oh, good people are trying to stop the bad kids. And the bad kids do this twist turn thing, like like really cheesy turn, stare at them. And you see the eyes go, wall, 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 wall. And then they kill themselves. That's 90% of the movie. It was like the pre... <laughs> It's like the precursor to the hypno toad on Futurama. <laughs> it kind of is. But not, but not funny or interesting. Yeah, it's pretty hammy, and it's a big disappointment for John Carpenter fans, I think. Okay, well, I, the one thing I'll say that I liked about it was I liked the concept of the kid, the, the demon kids, whatever, uh, partnering up 
it in childhood. I thought that was really interesting. And I would have liked to see more about that, kind of like they're these weird little rituals, but it kind of just did that the one time, and that was pretty much it. I wanted more of that. Yeah. I think it's funny that we. I love John Carpenter. He's probably my second favorite director, and yet I find myself going, yeah, I can stop after they live. <laughs> and that was like 87, 86? 88, yeah. Well, you know, he uh, he tried to get a Western made. And uh, he had he had a couple scripts he had written in the 70s he was trying to direct, and nobody would back it. So I think he ended up selling it to HBO, and they made both movies. One was Blood River, and the other one was El Diablo, both low-budget, like, I don't know, like two or three million dollar budgets, uh, westerns that were strictly for HBO. He, he, you know, he only got producer and writer credit on. And then it was uh, Memoirs of the Invisible Man with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. I know people who hate that movie with an unwavering passion and say that's when uh, John Carpenter sold out. And it just seems like it was a fun movie for him to you know, do a big studio film with uh, new effects that had never been done before. It was a challenge. And plus, it had to have been a big paycheck. I, I feel like I've seen it, but it's been so long. Well, you know, Shop Factory is the king um, of releasing special editions. And they got In the Mouth of Madness and Invisible Man coming up. I don't see Invisible Man as a special edition, but I would like to know the story about what exactly happened. This $40 million movie got pulled from the summer, dumped in February, and made like $8 million. I'm looking at here. No, I, um, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was trying to see. There's a bunch of movies that John Carpenter was uh, signed up to do around, uh, you know, between uh, They Live and... Memoirs of Invisible Man, and I'm curious. I know he tried for years to get a Creature from the Black Lagoon made. Hmm, interesting. Uh, okay, so here it is. Uh, the first movie that he uh, was let go from was Firestarter. Um, Universal got nervous after the thing bombed, and uh, even though Christine would save his ass a year later, and it was also a Stephen King novel, Universal decided to fire him from that one. It's so weird to hear now that uh, the thing... Uh, did not do well because you know pretty much anyone who's anyone who's like you know best horror movies of all time the thing is always up there oh yeah well i mean 1982 there's only two movies that really made a lot of money even though there's tons of classics from that year if you look at the movies that came out summer of 82 uh the only two one uh, it was poltergeist and et so steven spielberg basically owned that summer but you got blade runner mm-hmm. you got tron you got the thing um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of some other ones. So there is, it's like, oh, there's Conan the Barbarian. There's a lot of good, pulpy, fun films from that summer that just didn't do very well. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, yeah, Blade Runner was one that Roger Ebert hated, and then years later did another review of it and gave it a higher score, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I, I get that way with some movies too. I'll watch a movie and be like, oh, because I wasn't in the right mood. Um, you know, I can just be like, ah, boring, and then catch it like, a couple years later. I'm like, oh, oh, I was so wrong about this. Yeah, there's that, but I just thought it was interesting that I don't know how often Roger Ebert has redone reviews of his. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't happen very often. Okay, you know what? I was wrong a little bit here. Um, after E.T., uh, there was a couple hits, but you had The Thing, Megaforce, Blade Runner, Tron, The Secret of Nim, um... The Challenge, which is a great samurai flick, but nobody went and saw it. Uh, Night Shift, Pink Floyd, The Wall, 
Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Well, that was successful. That that was months after everything else. The Beastmaster, class of 1984. Those are all from the summer of 1982. All right. So, uh, so uh, yes? would you recommend the Village of the Damned? Um, it's cheesy fine. If you are a completionist with Carpenter, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. If you're into John Carpenter and you want to see everything he makes like me, go ahead. Um, but you're not really going to care after you're done watching it. Yeah. In the Mouth of Madness, I definitely recommend. Yeah, definitely. Uh, real quickly, though, the, the other projects that he had going on was Exorcist 3, which uh, he backed off when the original writer decided that he was going to direct it, which was called Legion, and then they slapped Exorcist 3 and refilmed it without anybody's permission. Uh, Tombstone, he almost directed. Ooh. Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Zombieland, he almost directed Zombieland. Uh, okay, that's weird. There's so many... There's some good movies in there. I don't know what happened. Is he just kind of a, too much of a rebel that people uh, really want to hire him? Well, sometimes people got cold feet about him directing it, but here, Top Gun... He turned down Top Gun. What? That, that movie might have been less douchebaggy if John Carpenter had directed it. That would have changed his career. I don't think he would ever have done any more horror after that. He would have just done like big action movies. Well, he probably would have made it a lot more... I don't want to say cynical necessarily, but he definitely would have put some kind of uh, some satire in there. Yeah. I mean, have you ever seen Top Gun? That movie's fucking terrible. I hate Top Gun with an unwavering passion. I've only seen a few scenes, and yes, one of those scenes is that very homosexual scene with Rock Lake Waterfall. Well, it's just, it's so macho and 80s Wall Street bullshit. You know, it's just like that preppy Republican uh, thing that was going on during the 80s. It just makes me sick. And there's no way that he ever would have directed that movie the way that, it, you know, we see it now. Right, he would have made the characters uh, a lot more three-dimensional. Yeah. And at Zombieland, he said, uh, should have been turned into a TV show. That's why he turned it down, because they insisted on being a feature film. And look, that movie made a ton of cash. But, hey, Ruben Fleischer is a legit director now, so he's going to be doing Venom, I guess, which I don't care about. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of over that. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, I, love, oh, I love Tom Hardy, but I don't... I love Tom Hardy. I don't think that's going to be a hit. There has to be some reason that he wanted to do it. It has to be like a crazy performance that he really wanted to get into. Or they're just like, back up the truck, let's load some more money. Nah, I don't think Tom Hardy would That's even do that, though. I, I haven't, he hasn't put in a bad performance yet. No. And I, I, uh, I'm worried about this one, and I know it's going to suck, because the trailer is, they've had like two trailers, and there's nothing in it. It's no. just him and a teacher. So it, it's probably going to suck ass. Do you think John Carpenter's done? Do you think he'll direct anything else? Yeah. Oh, hell no. He's, what is he, 90 now? <laughs> he's gonna, he just I, looks 90. I hear he's, I hear he's going to score the new Halloween movie. I think that's pretty, I think he just wants to do what he enjoys, and I know that he loves music. I think he's just going to score movies. Oh, okay. The, uh, I feel like all the remakes of his works are failures, because we had, we had remakes of The Fog, Salt on Precinct 13, Halloween, um, is that it? I feel like there was another one in there that they remade. The Thing? Oh, of course, The Thing. Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, and yeah. all of them pretty much failed. Like, they're not incompetent movies, but they're just like, what, yeah. was, what was the point? <laughs> oh, The Fog is terrible. The Fog is incompetent. But I thought Saw on Precinct 13 was well done, and The Thing was okay, but it was unnecessary, completely no, no, unnecessary. No, it Stop it. <laughs> no, don't even defend the remake of The Thing to me right now, because I'm going to puke. Okay. 
<laughs> but, you know, he did the, the ward, which you didn't like. I thought was okay. But what I thought he really did well at was Masters of Horror. Both of those episodes, especially Cigarette Burns, is I was going to say, I haunting. love Cigarette Burns. I love that one. Yeah. That's the one that traumatized my sister. She's like, I can't get that movie out of my head. It's been a week. And I was like, oh, so he did his job. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that is pretty much it for us here. I don't know what we'll do next because what we had lined up, we you know we just couldn't get access to. We were going to do cult horror films after doing the cult action films, and that didn't happen. So we're not going to say what we're going to do because I don't let you down. But uh, just you know, hey, go to Video Night Podcast on Facebook and like it, and that way you get all the updates from that podcast and its spinoff Trash Cinema. Yeah, do it. Uh, I don't know. Just force them. You're so like, you're like, yeah, whatever, it's cool. You're like uh, Matthew McConaughey and Days of Confused. Whatever, man, it'd be cool if you did. <laughs> well, you know, you gotta, you gotta play coy sometimes with people. You gotta like pretend it's not a big deal, and people think it's a big deal. Yeah, all right. Okay, say goodbye to the kids, Kersey. All right, see you. Should just play the laugh from Sam Neill as well <laughs> as I hit stop, just in the background, slowly. This has all been a nightmare. Trash Cinema. Alright, Trash Cinema episode. Episode, I don't know, I don't keep track of this stuff. It's weird when people do podcasts and like, episode 305. Uh, I don't know which episode we're on. Hey everybody, it's Trash Cinema. I'm your host, Michael, and the other side's Kersey. We're talking water monsters. Hey. <laughs> hey, what's up? <laughs> so, there's a handful of water monster movies that are fairly well known. Uh, I thought about doing Deep Rising and, and uh, Deep Blue Sea, but you kind of nixed that. We might do that later, though. I really want to talk about Deep Blue Sea because it's a ridiculous movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like that one's been done to death already. Yeah, and, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a lot more you know, meat on those bones. Yeah, but, yeah. I, you know, we could give it a shot, and if it doesn't work, we can just mix it. True. Um, this one is about the 80s burst of water-oriented monster movies. We had The Abyss. We had The Rift. We had, um, God, what was the one? There was one by Roger Corman. It's really bothering me now. Something from the Deep. Um, there's, there's a lot of these, but the, the big ones everybody really knows are Leviathan, Deep Star 6, and Abyss. Abyss was critically acclaimed. I think it's kind of boring, but it's a beautiful film. The two that I love, even though they're pretty much trashy, Leviathan and Deep Star 6. And uh, is this the first time you've seen either one of these movies? I mean, I hesitate to say yes because they're both just ripoffs of <laughs> well, other movies. Yeah, like like almost beat for beat. But yes, this is the first time I've seen those two in particular. Uh, Leviathan, I had seen first. I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies, like go rent them, but I was allowed to finally watch them on television when I was, I think, fourteen, and I caught Leviathan in its world premiere on Fox. And they had cut out a lot of stuff, but enough to cause you nightmares. I was so terrified by this movie that I was sitting in class the next day, and I heard a sound behind me, and I looked to make sure it wasn't one of those giant worm creatures. I don't, what, what, I don't know what I was thinking. I had a very active imagination. At the time, the movie really just scared the absolute crap out of me, but of course, I hadn't been conditioned to horror movies. I still think it's kind of entertaining and a little horrifying. Yeah, I think they're both entertaining. Um, when, I, when I say like they're basically rip-offs i don't mean that in a bad way there are some movies that can rip off the style and um the plot to other movies but they can be good 
Um, in this case, I would say both of these are pretty fun watches, but if you really want a, like, a good one, I would just watch the originals, and we'll talk more about um, what they're ripping off when we get into it. But it'll be pretty obvious to most adept movie viewers uh, what movies they're ripping off. Well, the one that I'm not 100% certain on is Deep Star 6. It, it feels like a bigger-budget Roger Corman film. You know, just a giant uh, plastic monster moving around. It's kind of an homage to older horror movies, but is there a specific one that you're thinking of? Oh, was, I thought I was thinking Alien the whole time. Maybe. You know, okay, okay, I can see that. Uh, well, I mean, like, there, there were scenes where, you know, like, going through the hallways. I mean, there, there's a lot of movies like that. Yeah. They had the hallways that even had, like, the scene where they're, where they're like, watching someone on the radar with the, the blips and that something was coming up behind them. In the That's true. Faster. Um, well, Alien was more of a haunted house film set in space, whereas Deep Star 6 seems to, um, it almost seems like a disaster movie in some of its actions. Um, actually, Leviathan has a little bit of that, too. It, they're really overdramatic, in the, and it's kind of campy fun. The monster is completely silly ridiculous, and you can tell they didn't have as much budget as Leviathan because they just couldn't attempt the same thing. Um... I don't think it's as entertaining as Leviathan, but there is a hokey charm to it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so the the main plot of Deep Star 6 is you have this team basically excavating underwater, and they're trying to, I can't remember, they're trying to find, um, was it oil they're trying to get to, and they accidentally open up a cavern where the creature comes out of it? Something like that. I can't remember what they were looking for either. It's kind of bad when you can't remember, huh? <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. The, well, a lot of these have the same kind of plot. They're underwater. They're they're. It's you. It's that's where they do rip off Alien. Is that it's like a blue collar team uh, against extraordinary odds. These aren't soldiers. These aren't guys that are truly like prepared to deal with a threat like this. They're just basically like, oh, this is ten years from now. You know, the not too distant future. This is what you know your average everyday Joe is going to be doing. You know, since the lumber isn't a thing anymore, you're going to be underwater. You're going to be searching for resources or whatever down there. And you're going to have a few specialists. And it's always like a British guy or somebody, you know, some uppity doctor, you know, who has the only answers. And there's always that, that badass leader who's always trying to, like, uh, we'll face the monster straight on. <laughs> you know, and then everybody else freaks mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. That's basically the plan. Yeah, and, um, no, yeah, and that, I, I would, we're, we're going to talk about Deep Star 6 first, right? That's yep. just kind of good here. Okay. So yeah, Deep Star 6 in particular is not really, I guess I would say not really memorable because I, I don't remember why they were down there. Um, and it, and, oh man, who was that actor who was in it? Um, uh, well, we have Greg Abigan. Robocop. Oh, oh uh, Miguel Ferrer, who sadly passed last year. Yes. Yeah, he's probably the best part of this movie because his wigged out character is insanely um, entertaining. Yes, definitely. He's uh, worth watching for sure. Yeah, I feel like most of the cast is really bland. They're all like TV actors. You know, oh, that guy was on BJ and the Bear. Oh, she was on Fame. You know, so like nothing really special when it comes to the actors. A lot of it comes down to just the set pieces, the special effects. Um, there is a guy in the movie. In the very beginning, you have the two guys that are in the spaceship. Not the spaceship, the uh, the water vessel. And um, he's got like a goatee and glasses. And you're like, God damn, what's that creature down there? We better get the hell out of here. You know that guy? Yeah. yeah, he's a teacher in Beaverton. Wait, what? Yep. Tom Bray, who was the star of Riptide for three seasons, would go on to be in Prince of Darkness, 
the horror show and this movie, and then basically just did some, you know, TV show of the week and some animation voice work, and then he retired about 10 years ago to Beaverton and is now an acting teacher. Huh. Interesting. Right. I, didn't, I didn't have him as my acting teacher. <laughs> oh, you're from Beaverton? Yeah, that's okay. I, I uh, went to school out there. Okay, yeah, I have to look it up what exactly high school. I'm pretty sure it's a high school that he was teaching at. And uh, he, I think he's very entertaining. He's only in the movie for maybe five minutes, which is kind of disappointing. Most of the people in this movie are actually only in it for five minutes, it seems. They all die pretty quickly. Yeah, um, one, one thing I'll probably give this over, because I, I think we'll probably lay on a lot more praise to Leviathan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did enjoy some of the more... Uh, suspenseful creature moments in this one than the other one. The uh, the one I like is the um, the little poles with the air blaster. What what is it? Is it CO two cartridges or something like that that they they're gonna ram the creature with? But Miguel Ferrer's character misses and hits one of the doctors, and his chest explodes. And I was like, whoa, that is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, those. Uh, yeah, I believe those were CO two tanks. Uh, the director is Sean S. Cunningham, who is known mostly for doing uh, the first Friday the 13th, also produced The Last House on the Left, and directed a very underrated thriller with James Spader called The New Kids. Pretty much retired from filmmaking. Every once in a while, his name gets attached to something that's usually a remake, you know, another Jason movie or something like that. Not as skilled as, I would say, George P. Cosmatos of Leviathan. He's very... Um, just functional director. There's no real camera work that you notice that's unique. No, uh, it's very almost TV movie like, direct to video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that about both though. Really? Because I, I feel like uh, the Leviathan has a, a stronger direction. At least uh, visually, looks uh, uh, more striking. Uh, I mean, yeah. Vi- I mean, definitely uh, they had better lighting. I don't know whether or not the, the camera work was particularly good or yeah. anything, but it, it was uh, staged very competently. Uh, the, yeah, the guy who did the uh, director of photography on uh, Deep Star 6 is Mac Alberg, and Mac Alberg is mostly known for doing the stuff for uh, Full Moon and Empire Pictures. So if you like Trancers and uh, um, Robot Jocks and stuff like that, he's the guy who basically did the filmography for all the or uh, uh, director of photography for those. Nothing really special. Yeah. So basically, uh, it's another one of those uh, water movies that ends with the whole thing collapsing, you know, imploding on itself. They escape. Monster gets destroyed the last second. And a lot of the beats are the same as Leviathan. Just, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I think Deep Star 6 was done for $8 million. Leviathan was done for $20 million. Both bombed. But you see more... Uh, time and effort put into Leviathan. I, I read that Deep Star 6 was rushed through production just so they could beat Leviathan. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I could definitely tell. I can, I can see that. Um, so the second... They're just not oh, really... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you're, you're, go ahead. I'm fine. I was saying, is there, is there really nothing that we can do with sort of underwater premises anymore? I mean, we haven't really had, like, underwater movies. Um, well... They're really, while, expe- yeah. You know, it's like, it's either all set based or they're very expensive to do stuff underwater. I mean, we got Aquaman coming up, and that's going to cost like 150 million dollars because it's going to be so hard to film all that. Well, because you know, like a lot of these movies, because um, 
like one of my big fears is open water. Oh yeah. And so movies like movies like this, I have not I have not watched for so long because I just assumed that I that this would freak me out too much. But really, I, I've watched quite a few at this point, and, and they kind of just kind of feel the same. I don't know if there's just like not a lot of good ideas out there for something like that. No, I'll say that there's not a lot of quality water-based movies, especially thrillers. The problem, um, I think, is because there's too many of these damn shark movies. It seems like every fucking week there's a new shark movie and then some sort of hybrid shark movie. And I'm just so fed up with it. There's so many things in the sea that we've never discovered and no one has any imagination to go, hey, uh, you realize we've only explored maybe like 5% of the ocean? We don't really know what's out there. Let's come up with something truly unique. Yeah, like you can take, and again, I'm going to talk about Annihilation. I don't know if I talked about Annihilation the last time. I think you did, uh, yeah. We did this. I probably did because it's like my favorite movie now. I've seen it three times in the theaters. Oh, wow. Um, but it, it, it take that kind of premise of like nature distorted and just like put it into an ocean setting and it would be amazing. Like, you know, it, it, yeah, like you said, we haven't really seen much of the ocean. Create a future scenario or something like that where you have the technology to go deeper, like to pressurize cabins better or whatever. And go deeper into like the the blackness of the sea, and you can see all different kinds of creatures. That would be amazing. Yeah, um, it's like your creativity just go. I don't know if you read comic books really, but Aquaman used to be the joke of the DC universe. But someone took over about five years ago, and he basically does that. He's like, look, why do we keep focusing on stupid sharks and seahorses and the fact that he can talk to fish? Let's go into these other realms in the water, and and they turned Aquaman basically into a horror comic book. There's there's stuff in there that is truly this nightmarish. Is that is, is that the style when he has the hook? No, him? no, that's the bullshit extreme age. Ugh. No, this is this is afterwards. He had died, and they brought him back, um, and he's whole again. And basically now he's just exploring his world, and they open up this cavern where this these human piranha hybrids live and he can't control them with his mind and they're ravenous and they find that there's another world above the water and they basically go to san diego and they're like it's basically just taking a giant lawnmower to san diego i mean it's just a blood bloodbath yeah see that that sounds like my kind of movie that i would want to see or like deep sea creatures yeah and then stuff like cthulhu they, they start tapping into that world and stuff like that and it's, there's a hell mouth at the bottom of one of the uh oceans it's, it's just really clever how they've been doing it lately and i wish movies could tap into that mm-hmm. it's the only place where you can have this so much space and yet still be claustrophobic and only for a brief moment in uh deep star six do they have a, a moment of claustrophobia and that's only because of the whole bends sequence, you know, when he goes up too fast and it doesn't properly uh, distribute the oxygen and his head explodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that that was the only part that was legitimately scary or disturbing. Yeah, uh, a lot of the stuff from Leviathan is more gross out. Like it's just what slimy creature creation can we come up with, which is why it does feel like the thing. Um, it's all about like this tiny spore of something can basically take over a whole body, mutate it, and become something else, and then they all collect into a giant beast. That is very much like the thing. And the thing for anyone out there who may not know, um, which I don't think I've ever talked about the thing, but it is one of my favorite uh, horror movies. I actually have a framed uh, poster of it in my living room. 
Nice. That's how much I love that movie. Do uh, how do you and, feel about the sequel, the prequel sequel? <laughs> oh, don't even fucking okay. Okay, all right. I went to go see it in the theater, and about halfway through, I had like my head in my hands, like, what the fuck did they do? Yeah. I mean, I get, I like the idea. I love the idea of the what happened before. And that kind of, even if it was good, it would still kind of ruin the atmosphere because one of the things that made the thing so great in the in the buildup to the creature is that you don't really know what's happening. Right. And so by going into the other, the Norwegian facility and seeing just shit everywhere, you're very confused. But if you know what happens, it's not quite as scary. But I, I, it could have worked. And there were some ideas that were kind of good, but... Overall, they just handled it really poorly, especially yeah. the creature. Well, well, I heard they redid it, all the effects. Like, it was all practical effects, and they said kids don't like practical effects, so they did it all CGI against, like, the filmmaker's wishes. Like, the studio mandated it. And that seems like an insanely stupid decision and shows you how clueless uh, studio heads are. Yeah, I, that's, that was the thing that surprised me, because when I watched it, I was like, this is just CG terrible bullshit and then i saw like behind the scenes making of it and they used had like real props it's like i don't even what this doesn't even look at all like what it looked like in the movie because this actually looks good yeah they should have found a way to meld yeah they should have found a way to meld both cgi and practical and, and it just seems like a stupid decision there is a sequel though in the comic books dark horse comics picked up the license for the thing in 92 or 93 and basically, it was uh, a what if if they, uh, a team had come to rescue Kurt Russell's character, but the virus got out through Keith David's character, and it takes over a small Alaskan town. You know, I mean, real small, like 60 people, whatever, and he has to uh, yeah, stop but, it before it goes any further. Well, we all know that Childs was the creature anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I, I guess I, should, I shouldn't be too hard on the prequel anyway, because... Um, uh, the director of that movie, John Carpenter, he already kind of ruined the movie. If you, um, I don't know if we talked about this either, but the video game that was made um, was a direct sequel, which John Carpenter himself had said, this is the sequel to the thing, was horrible and really boring and not at all fun. Oh. And that kind of ruins it too, because yeah, yeah. if you play it, it really, it's it's horrible and it tries to continue the story and it's so, it's just, it's just really bad. The uh, yeah, that's the problem with Leviathan. I think that which takes it down. And the funny thing is that the thing bombed. Like seven years earlier, it was a notorious flop, and they said that it was cynical and they should be making it. You know, in the summer of E.T., and they basically like you know uh, damaged John Carpenter's career. And then you have this company from Italy coming in, going, "We're going to spend twice as much as the thing on creating this uh, underwater creature movie," and it's, it's basically the same concept. Like I said, the, the creature creations by Stan Winston are really fun to watch. Peter Weller is a great lead who really never got his due um, after the RoboCop films. And um, it has, a, I just think, a fun cast, and yet again, of like blue-collar workers. Mm-hmm. And I, I also just want to point out, too, is that it's not... I mean, if they just kind of ripped the idea and tried to do something different or... You know, keep keep the same bones as the thing, and sort of kind of try to try to make their own style with it. That's totally fine. The problem is that it's not just the idea that they took; it was literally everything. I mean, they have the the main character who's you know like hiding the alcohol, who has who wears a hat all the time. Um, they have the the creatures, you know, like the the, the original guy who was 
turn into the creature after drinking the thing laying on the table, and then they have put the other dead body on top and they, like, fused together, which is exactly, like, how they found the creature. They found yeah. the body. They put it in a body bag. Just, like, all, even all the little details that were just completely unnecessary that just totally ripped off. Yeah, trapped in a place where they desperate to get out, but there's really no way to get out. You know, they have the water they have to deal with and, and the thing they deal with, the extreme cold. And... They even took they even took the idea of the storm coming in. That was the original reason they couldn't leave was yeah, the yeah, storm yeah. was coming, and they inserted that too. The one thing that really really upset me about this movie, and it's kind of like a cliche of eighties and early nineties horror movies, is the black guy survives until two minutes left. Like you think everybody's gonna be okay, and the creature comes up out of the water, and he gets killed. And you're like, God, you just it went so far with this, and you had to take him out. You son of a bitch. <laughs> But anyway, all, all all of my ranting aside, I actually did enjoy it, and I um, thought it was it was pretty decent. Yeah, if you like that kind of movie, I would just say watch the thing. But yeah. I mean, as far as you know, movies go, and uh, you know, taking its it, taking its plot essentially, it is pretty good. I think it's funny is they always go through these I, places with uh, weapons they probably shouldn't have in there. I mean, I'm just thinking, like a blowtorch. I forgot about that. Yeah, I was like, this, they used a flamethrower too. And I was like, I can't imagine there's a lot of oxygen left in this place, buddy. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't even make sense. Well, I didn't even think about that one. Well, there's the one part where they have the body in the bag, and they're gonna throw it into. Aren't they just gonna shoot it out into the ocean, and one of the pieces comes out and then lands in the water, and that's when it becomes the snake creature later? What happened to the rest of it? Is it just floating out there in the ocean? Did they burn it? I can't remember. Is it just out there to be absorbed by another creature? It probably. They might have had a sequel in mind. Leviathan 2, and, it's in, and that's how they got all these Sharktopus movies. Is, uh, yeah. the, the, the shark comes along and starts eating that bag of whatever, monster flesh, and then it becomes Sharktopus. Who, that's yeah. what happens. Who would, have, who would have known that Sharktopus was a loving tribute uh, <laughs> to Leviathan? So they get it from, they're another one of these like excavating kind of raiders, uh, a team that's basically going through a Russian facility trying to find what had happened to them, and he takes it out of the bottle. Now, I'm trying to remember, was this a actual weapon that was developed to poison people, and was it a biochemical, like a weaponry? What do you call it? Bio... Oh, fuck is the word I'm looking for? Bio uh, biochemical weapon? Yes, thank you. I just couldn't put the words together, even though I kind of said them. Yeah, they were they're out of order, but you had them. Yeah. Uh, I if I remember correctly, when they were looking through the files of the people, they said they were all deceased, um, which was odd because why would they have like death certificates for everybody inside of the the safe? I don't know. There was something like that. So yeah, I think the intention was to kill them or was to test this new weapon of theirs. Uh huh. So why wasn't there another creature on their ship? Like, wasn't there? Why wasn't there a monster on the Russian ship? Oh, there was. So remember like, that they were scanning the the ship, and then they found like this huge claw. Oh, I don't. I don't know why I didn't remember any of that. Um, it was it was only like ten seconds. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just watched the movie too, like a month ago, and it's it's one of those that always seems to be on a streaming service. It's weird. Uh, the MGM catalog is one of the most lost and misused uh, catalogs. So, oh, now leaving this uh, streaming site, and then it'll show up like two weeks later. Like, what was the point of taking it away? Why? I don't understand. 
All right, anyway, I, I guess uh, that, yeah. Did we, even yeah. Describe the, did we describe the plot of the movie yet? Or no, not really. Right no, nah, I mean, we basically did, though. I mean, they, these guys go down, they find the chemical weapon. Daniel Stern drinks, he shares it with his girlfriend. They both get infected. They become one giant creature. They try to throw it out the airlock. Um, part of it gets loose, and, the, like, the arm falls off, whatever, turns to a snake, goes into a guy's stomach, which is one of the most revolting scenes I've ever watched in my life. And I cried when I saw it the first time, because I felt so bad for that guy. It's just like digging through his guts. It's it's nightmarish. I suppose we did explain the plot. I, we, I mean, we established it was a straight-up uh, rip-off of the thing. So if yeah. you've seen the thing, you've seen the movie. Yeah, yes. they just become one giant creature. Um, and I like the parts when the, the mouth comes out of the hand. I, I thought that was so original until you saw it in like five other movies before that. But at the time, I'd only seen like four horror movies. <laughs> That's it. That's really the whole yeah, plot. And Meg Foster with those glowing eyes is the lady who's basically running the facility, but won't let them come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. I didn't. I did not understand the motivation for the, that character. That was one of the things that was just kind of a small detail. That I guess it's not really important, but yeah. something that just gets stuck in your head that you can't get rid of, which is kind of the same for me watching Black Panther. But um, the thing that I kept thinking of is that I guess they. She owns the company or is a representative of the company they're working for or the government. I can't remember if it was private or government-based. But the main character, Peter Weller, um, he was basically overseeing the operation that they were going through. And they only had one day left. And that's the day that the one guy got sick, right? Mm-hmm. And so they wanted, they wanted to go up a day early. And she said, oh, well, you know, this would ruin an otherwise spotless record. And I was like, wait a minute. Isn't the job of a good captain to not endanger the entire crew over, you know, one day. Yeah, I mean, that totally. seems like something a good captain would do. Yeah. Can you believe this is from the same director as Cobra? What? Uh, I, I don't think I've seen Cobra. Oh, what? Cobra. Was that the one with Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, the one episode where it went totally to shit. Yeah. Yeah, Wait. so this, this okay, guy... No, I don't... I, yeah, it's just funny because I, I, I still can't tell what movies he directed... Or he was just basically a gun for hire. Legend says that George Pan Cosmatos, um, he directed Unknown Origin, which is about a giant rat monster fighting Peter Weller. That was in '83. And then he, have you seen that one? No. Oh my God, you gotta see it. It's really gross. Uh, it's a giant rat yeah, creature that finds his way into the, this guy's house, whatever, and burrows into the walls, and basically this big showdown with like a ten foot rat and Peter Weller. <laughs> Man, what happened with Peter Weller? Like, I know. What was his career? What, what is the trajectory of his career? He's just all over the place. Yeah, like, doing weird, well, he's terrible Canadian, movies, and I he's think. got like some hits, and then he does movies like some movies like Naked Lunch. Yeah. Like, what is his career? I can't pin it down. Well, I know that he's very artsy. In fact, after acting kind of dwindled for him, that he went back to college and he is a PhD in uh, modern art. But um, started off as a character actor out of Canada, um, then was in a lead role in Unknown Origin, then went to Buckaroo Banzai, uh, did a few more independent movies, then he did Robocop. Robocop's the one that really got him out there. He did a really shitty cop movie that's so insanely bad, we must discuss it at some point, called Shakedown, Uh, then Leviathan, then Robocop 2. And then after RoboCop 2, he's like, I made all the money I ever need to make off RoboCop 2. I'm going to do whatever I want from here on out. And he made a bunch of art movies, uh, independent movies that nobody really saw, like Naked Lunch and The New Age and stuff like that. Lots of low-budget, like, uh, detective movies. A couple really shitty action movies. 
Um, then he came back and did Screamers. I don't know if you've ever seen that with the uh, cyborgs on Mars in the year 2025, 2550 or something like that. Uh, nope. Yeah, that's also another one of those. Holy shit, how did this get made? And then uh, he also does, uh, I think it's did some does some TV directing here and there. And, uh, yeah. He was a character in Sons of Anarchy for a while. He played uh, old Batman in the Dark Knight Returns cartoon. He was in Star Trek. And he he was excellent uh, in that, by the way. Yeah, Star Trek Into Darkness, I want to say. Yeah. Dark, I don't remember that. I actually haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's the second one with a new cast. But he's just one of those guys that he'll do a bunch of no, stuff. No, no. He'll do a bunch of stuff that no one watches, and then he'll do a big movie like once every five years that gets his name back out there, and then he goes back to doing independent stuff. Wait, Into Darkness. Oh, yeah, that is the second one. Okay, yeah. Is yeah. that what, Star Trek Beyond is the third one? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, also, this was written by David Webb Peebles, who wrote uh, Blade Runner, Unforgiven, and Soldier with Kurt Russell. Oh, what? That's a, what the hell happened? Yeah, that's a weird bag right there. Yeah, he's got some great movies under his belt, and then he's got something like this, which I would call good but derivative. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a surprise because he was the main writer. The other writer was Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart, I think, was a co-writer of Fugitive and Switchback and stuff like that. Not really a horror guy, so kind of something just did, um, like you know, a thriller. So he must have brought in some more. He, I bet you he pumped up the action sequences in Leviathan. Mm. Well, I mean, as long as we're talking about action sequences and Leviathan, I got to say that the last like ten minutes uh, I thought were horrible. But <laughs> I mean, the the creature in the water effects were really bad. Oh yeah, when how they filmed it was ridiculous. It went from being like a fairly well made movie to I'm gonna get I'm gonna bet you that they were reshoots. I bet you they didn't like the ending. They said mm-hmm. we're gonna give you a million dollars. You got to redo this whole ending. And he's like, I'm sorry, did you just say only a million dollars? And he's like, yeah, do what you got to do. And it looks like low-rent television from 20 years earlier. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that really felt like I was watching a 1940s, 50s sci-fi at that time. Well, I mean, he uses a fucking grenade launcher and shoots it into his mouth and explodes his head. But if even a spore gets into the bloodstream of something else, it takes over. So how is blowing his head off really kill it? Doesn't a fish just come along and eat a little bit and you basically have, like, insane monster trout? And that was another thing that kind of bothered me about um, the movie, too. And again, it's just because it's partly derivative. But in the thing, there was, um, you know, the doctor actually acted like a doctor and used gloves. Um, Didn't really have people touch it uh, until he really understood what was going on. Well, I mean, he did have actually. Actually, that's not true. We did have someone touch one of the one of its uh, tendrils or whatever. Yeah, that was coming out, but they didn't really understand what it was yet. They just knew that it was, uh, you know, like mutating. Uh huh. And then when he and then he actually studied it, and then he used projections of what it would look like if something like that got into the into a populous city. And that kind of like how that's kind of how the movie is set up in the thing, which sets off the huge paranoia and isolation that the movie is known for. But with this movie, he's a doctor and he's just like touching other people's blood. <laughs> yeah. Even if he, which he knew was infected at this point in the movie too. And you knew, you knew it's infected and you're a doctor. You don't, gen, doctors generally don't touch other people's blood. No. So, so I mean, in a way, <laughs> the, the crab monster in Deep Star 6 is something, an idea that's more tangible, 
And also, there's none of those questions afterwards where you're like, no, hold on a second. So why did they do, you know, how does this thing, you know, it's just a giant crab monster. Blow its head off, you're good. And then uh, the uh, computer sequence where they're doing where it's like, oh, let's do a projection of what would happen if it enters a populous city. Except it's all done in text, and the text <laughs> doesn't really make sense. Like the, compu- like the computer has sentience for some weird reason. Yeah. Where it, like, he'll type into the computer, you know, like, what happens in a populous city? And it says, I don't know. <laughs> and then he says, guess. <laughs> and then it just says, I don't know, mutation? <laughs> Which was a really weird thing for a computer to say. Um, <laughs> at least, at least in the thing, he was giving it specific parameters and was timing it on a stopwatch to verify. Like there was, you know, I mean, it was kind of bullshit science, but at least they tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and by the way, I finally remembered that Roger Corman underwater movie is called Lords of the Deep. Um, Lords of the Deep mm-hmm. and the Rift are uh, really, really low budget. You think Deep Star Six is low budget, eight million dollars? I'm going to tell you now that both of those were done for a million, and nothing really happens. They're not very good, but, you know, hey, everybody's making water monster movies for some reason this time. Yep, just a popular thing to do. Like, right now, it's the franchise that's really popular. Yeah, yeah, building the universes. I was just thinking, there was another mm-hmm. one in there. I don't even know if it counts as a water monster movie, but Anaconda is another one of those crazy batshit movies that... Oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that counts as a water monster movie. Uh, when it was, it, it swam in the water, didn't it? Yeah, that's true. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Is well, that the, that's the one with uh, John Voight, right? Yeah. Snakes don't bite blood. people. Oh, they don't. And he has like this big... <laughs> <laughs> All right, chew that scenery, John Voight. <laughs> and then Ice Cube just yells the entire time, Man, I don't know what the snake's doing on here. <laughs> he has always, I've never seen Ice Cube just talk. He's always like yelling stuff at people. Yeah, um... Yeah, because he, he's also in the, the Law and Order, right? The what is it? No, that's Ice-T. Oh, okay, never mind. Oh, yeah, Ice-T. Ice-T is the... He does the same thing, where he, he like has this weird inflection with every line. Right, but he always has this look on his face, like, as he's saying his line, he smells a fart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, I think we covered everything with these two movies. Um, I would say yes to Leviathan. You know what, even Deep Star Six, but just lower your... Your expectations, because it's not as well made. Both are infinitely better yeah, than than the other two that I mentioned earlier, but um, not as slow and boring and pretentious as The Abyss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're like sick and just kind of want to watch some crappy movies, then yeah, Deep Star Six is fine. Um, I would say Leviathan is definitely better and worth a watch. Yeah, well, the cast alone, I think, is just a notch up on everybody. It's just, you know, you got you got your A-level, B-level, C-level, and everybody in Deep Star 6 is definitely C-level. I would say most of the people in Leviathan are B, maybe a couple A's. Mm-hmm. All right, that is it for us here. Uh, check us out on Facebook under Video Night. You'll find all the episodes of Trashima as well as episodes of Video Night. And uh, we have a Patreon under Retro Rocket Entertainment, which is the main banner for all our podcasts. And uh, thank you very much, Kersey, for another great episode. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, we don't know what we'll do next, but um, we'll surprise you with something. I don't know. We never know what we're going to do from one minute to the next. It's funny how many times we're like, we're going to do this, and then two weeks later, we're like, "Eh, hey, what about this thing instead? I'm like, okay, well, too bad I told the uh, (laughs) listeners already. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) We just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. Sometimes. All right, everybody, have a good night.